everybody. Welcome to Dead Cat. This is Eric Newcomer. Tom and Katie are here. I've totally lost my voice. I am mustering through sickness to make sure that someone here who has been writing about AI is on the podcast because <laughs> Katie and I are just here to sound good. We're, <laughs> we're actually our, not here. Our AI stand-ins are here. The first generative podcast. We have Nathan, who's the founder, sole general partner of Air Street Capital. I feel like I started covering European tech and like we started exchanging a lot of messages. And yeah, so I've been looking for an excuse to do something with you. And then finally, I got on the AI hype train and you've been thinking about AI for many years and you're like, everybody, welcome to the party or whatever. Yeah. Glad to have you. <laughs> yeah. What's it feel like now that everyone's obsessed with AI all of a sudden? Has it been a shock or what's sort of your reaction to the mania of the moment? Hasn't quite been a shock because sort of expecting this to happen. In a way, it's great that, you know, like a new advanced technology domain gets attention from increasingly generalist investors or you know, investors who focus on different industries because it almost then, you know, reaffirms that like the technology is for real and probably has applications in all sorts of domains. Yeah, and all your portfolio companies can get marked up. Like, you just have to hope you got in a lot of the deals. Explain to me what happened exactly. Because, I mean, if we're just going to trace the chronology of the last year in venture investing, obviously 2020, 21, maybe the first half of this year has been about crypto. And you saw all these funds rebranding themselves as crypto-focused funds. And all of these VCs that I used to talk to all the time about their old investments are like, what the hell are you talking about delivery to me? I don't do delivery. I'm a crypto investor now. Yeah. And I mostly do crypto. And it seems like that's all been forgotten now. Like that's all been memory holds. And like they all switched their hats and they took off their .eth on their hat and they put on AI. Like explain to me what has happened over the last year. The real like inflection point was when you could kind of master this first viral use case of machine learning, which is images and video. Like before, when you had text models that were working really well and you could generate like a script or you could talk to a bot, there's something that's fundamentally less interesting reading a script with a bot than looking at these epic images that never existed before that you designed with your own instructions on your mobile phone. So I'd almost call it like the consumerization of machine learning, or at least the product, the output of machine learning, which is understandable and much more tangible to almost everybody who uses the internet than the products that came before. And while those tools like Stable Diffusion and Dolly from OpenAI were available to people in the know yeah. for a while, they really came out, what, like late August, September. And that yeah. has really sort of kicked this all off just yeah, because yeah. the public's very aware. Yeah, and I think their distribution's also been quite interesting from how the machine learning market has evolved because the central dogma has always been that centralization wins, which is like, to be good at machine learning, you need to have all the data, all the top people, all the computers, and then the products, and you mix it together, and, and then you get sort of, you know, great machine learning on the other side. And crypto's been the counterbalance to that, which is just decentralize everything, give power back to everybody. And yeah, over the first few months of this year, the fact that you can, you know, now like arm the rebels, as it were, arm these open source communities, which are basically, they call themselves like research collectives, and they either gather on Discord or, or other forums that might not even be companies or corporate entities, and provide them with access to compute, which is what stability really did, sort of liberates the creativity of 
individuals who couldn't participate because they weren't part of the, you know, the GAFA elite, the you know, big technology company elite. And that's actually led to like massive open sourcing, which then busts up the centralization hypothesis and shows you that there is like another path to building and distributing machine learning based products. So I think that's what like a lot of folks are getting excited about too. How important was Dolly as a product? And I guess for our listeners that haven't used it out there, I mean, this is the tool that Eric was mentioning, like OpenAI released, and it allows you through fairly direct instructions. You've got to be direct because it's not always that smart. You've got to basically say like in the style of Monet or in, I feel like the key is to like yeah. give or it photorealistic. A, right, exactly. Right, right. Or clip art. But basically you can give instructions to, you know, it's a, some software and it will generate with less than a minute some fairly creative depiction of, of what you drew. And it's yeah. like very easy to use and it's like a very clear product of what AI can do. So like, how important do you think just that being released even on a beta level and then more openly played into the excitement from investors that there's like a whole opportunity here? I think the community was like pretty blown away with the results of Delhi and especially like Delhi 2. But then they get back to this question of can you build businesses on the APIs, on the closed APIs of you know, large companies? And, you know, there's a few that are built on GPT. So I think that that excitement got even greater once like these models became reproduced in the open source world by folks like Stability, Luther, et cetera. So I think it's really just this, this notion of like busting up centralized entities and providing tools to everybody else. And I think they've also landed really well just because we kind of live in this like TikTok generation of short form image, like video and images and Instagram and the outputs of these models are like perfect fodder for those platforms. Well, what's interesting to me about Dolly and this whole idea of generative images is that it's something that you can very easily explain to someone. Like, I think it passes the dinner table test that crypto certainly had a very difficult time doing. You know, like <laughs> crypto also has had a hard time passing the market test. Anyway, yeah, cri- crypto had the grandma yeah. just trust me, put all your money in this. Right, it's a different dinner table conversation, yeah. especially with older people. But yeah, you know, it's like everyone. I'm assuming all of our listeners spent last Thanksgiving trying to explain to their uncles, or even worse, having their uncles explain to them the value of crypto and like what it can do. And then whereas with this, it's like, oh, why don't you think of some words and let me put it into a prompt and I can enter it and it'll draw an image. And at the very least, you're like, oh, wow, that is impressive technology that I can tangibly, yeah. you know, like you're saying, you, you can grasp. And I mean, I know it seems like really simplistic to put it in these terms, but is that how investors felt as well? It's like, oh, I, I get this. This is cool. I think there's probably a bunch of like, I get this and this looks like consumer technology that I've been used to investing for a very long time. I think the other thing, too, is some investors realizing that they don't have like a bet in AI. Like, what is my big, bold bet? And when I like the proverbial investor sees that open AI is worth a ton of money, that DeepMind's doing some great things, that there are some new offshoot labs that we profiled in our state of AI report that are raising tons of money, you know, built by billion people, that there are kind of all these adjacencies that you can apply like machine learning to sort of get to just drum themselves up into this FOMO. Can you break down just like generative AI versus what's everything else? Or I feel like all of a sudden we're talking about generative AI. Yeah. By textbook definition, you basically have like two kind of categories of machine learning. You have like what's called discriminative machine learning, which is basically like given a data set, how can I draw a boundary between two categories in that data set? So if the data set is just like images of animals, where is the boundary that separates one species from another? And then 
you train this model on this data set, and then its task when it sees new data is to just classify you know, the species that's present in the image. And that's discriminative. By contrast, like generative is basically where the model is trying to learn like the statistics, the probability distribution of a data set, like learn something intrinsic about it, such that you can ask the model to basically generate, to synthesize a new example that fits that data distribution. And so like at a high level, basically what we've done is created models that are like able to sort of learn like increasingly complex data sets. In this case, like the entire internet or the entirety of like Flickr or whatever, um, in pairs of, you know, text descriptions to image representations, such that when you ask it to generate like some arbitrary scene, like with some very specific prompts, like it's seen different combinations of these things before and can smush them together in a way that like looks nice. So you could, you could probably argue that like a lot of the generative AI that like we're talking about today, which is images and video and text, sort of like a rebranding of like creative AI that I used to see like five years ago or so hmm. when especially this technology called GANs, like generative adversarial networks, hmm. which were like, you know, very hot and hypey a couple of years ago where you basically get like one model that generates an image and then another model that says like, is it good or is it bad? And then you sort of pit them together against one another iteratively. And then at some point, like the image generator becomes good because it can fool the network that's saying is it good or bad. So it's sort of like not new and is like fundamentally part of like textbook machine learning. You know, I feel like I'm going to ask the most obvious question here. So bear with me. But how does human creativity work alongside generative AI? Does it compete with generative AI? You know, if we can do so much based on extraordinary works already created in the past that we all love and admire. And we imagine that AI could create really pleasing, interesting, thought-provoking work based on that. Where does human creativity sit alongside that? I think in a way, human creativity will just be like a guide, almost. And then these generative models will just help you explore like the search space of what you could possibly make. And I think like at a high level, what's kind of beautiful with these machine learning models that, you know, synthesize more data than any human could ever do in their entire career if they tried to become expert at something is that kind of spread over like humanity's history, we can sort of get to like more local optimum solutions to things. Like if you remember the AlphaGo sort of case study, it's like if you train a system on like as many simulations as physically possible in the space of time, then you'll probably get some gameplay that's better than what we've seen before. And so it turns out that like all of human expertise passed on from one generation to another yields a local optimum that's not the best that exists. And so I think, you know, in a way that these generative systems are sort of guides to get us to more optimal solutions and, you know, this applies to making pictures prettier and prettier, but it also applies to making more potent kind of drug molecules and pharmaceuticals. It's funny to hear this answer in the domain of creativity, though. You're like, they're going to be, they're going to rank in a higher percentile of creativity than we have. And it's like very well, subjective. It's interesting, too, because it takes things like Picasso and turns him into sort of raw material. It turns him into a commodity. Right. Yeah. In order to generate more images. Yeah, right. I wanted to build on sort of Katie's question, which is just also this sort of latent like plagiarism style or just like, the machines taking advantage of like past human creativity mm -hmm. to become smarter. There's sort of the philosophical question in that where I think some artists feel like, well, they're taking my data to build 
these future drawings and really I'm not getting a cut of that even yeah. though it needed me. So there's partially it's just like philosophical. But I am curious also like as an investor, is there any like legal risk here? Someone was talking to me, you know, like this generative work could be done in like video games or something. And you can imagine like the set of video games is much smaller and it could be much more obvious if you're sort of building sort of an algorithm off of existing sort of, you know, video game IP. Yeah. I don't know. So how do you think about sort of the intellectual property of what goes into these systems? Yeah, I think it depends on like, the scale of the data set that the model is learning from. Because you could probably argue if the model is sucking up the entirety of the internet, then what is one incremental like blog author's blog going to help this model? And how can they justify that? Unless perhaps like they're so iconic in their style, like in the artistic space with Picasso. Or it could be the grounds for the largest class action lawsuit of all time. <laughs> yeah. Like, so that, that, that my words funny. were stolen as part of the large language model. And I believe all 7 billion people on earth have a claim to that. I love it when big law firms come together with technology. <laughs> yeah. Wait a second. Exactly. So I think that's probably one of the only ways that like one could legislate against these systems, which is like get the entirety of like a significant pool of people to legislate or to or to file lawsuits because the individual consumer is not going to have a say. I'd love to see that advertisement on TV. Have you or your words been used as part of a large language <laughs> model that you feel is impeding on your personal rights and creativity? You may be entitled to a settlement. Hey, we have a prediction in the state of the airport that we'll probably have some form of like content lawsuit that will, I think at some point, just give rise to like a new sort of licensing agreement, which is like, hey, for example, like I'm Reddit and in order to train on the entirety of my, you know, corpus of conversations, et cetera, then you have to abide by blah, blah, blah. Fascinating. So there actually could theoretically be some sort of licensing element of this that has to be taken into account for these large language models. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're a big content owner, that's part of like your future monetization stream. And that's a way for you to participate in this future that's pretty inevitable. I think what's open source, like, gets their hands on something, it's kind of an inevitable direction of travel. So then the question is like, are you Wikipedia or are you Encarta? So it's one of the reasons why there's such a rush to go in early, you know, is, is one reason that investors sort of see this on the horizon, which would slow growth. So get in now while there's still a lot of room for very quick movement. I think yes or no, but I think if you're early, then you probably might suffer from like being the tallest poppy and sort of being the target, you know, and then once like the lay of the land has been cast, then the fast followers can move in. And I think that's been proven Napster's all the time. gone, Spotify is here, exactly. you know. Yeah. Exactly. I think that kind of dynamic can happen. But it is also true that in open source and just in communities in general, like once you get momentum, it's hard to stop it unless you really screw things up or something new pops up. And so like it's tough to think about what are these competitive long-term moats that you can apply to sort of keep your pole position. Did you follow the whole conflict this week between Stability AI and Runway? Yeah, I saw that yesterday, actually. And yes, I tweeted, I was like, open source AI for all? Like, what? Can you recap it here? It's very obscure. It, it's happening on Hugging Face, which is like the message board of sort of the AI world. So I was deep in, but basically, these two companies, both backed by KOTU, you know, the huge investor, Stability AI is basically the company that put out Stable Diffusion with some other researchers. And then this company, Runway, I think their co-founder participated 
in the research with Stable Diffusion, they put out like an update to Stable Diffusion without Stability AI's permission. And then Stability AI basically said this was a violation of their IP and threatened them. And then eventually somehow Runway got them to back down. But it's like clear that these sort of open source projects are not as open source maybe as represented. Different people want to own them. And people are raising at billion-dollar valuations off technologies where it's not clear who controls them. Nathan, did I gloss that right? Or what am I missing? Or what do you think is interesting about the whole incident? I think you got it quite right. The other interesting thing is like the core technology and paper and basically research that underpins like stability came from academic environments that, you know, were sort of enabled by large compute infrastructure. And so that's sort of also been like increasingly ignored as perhaps like this ecosystem's become financialized by, you know, applying large valuations to companies. So I was surprised. I was especially surprised by the keyword of like stability IP because I thought in all the marketing that there is no IP because it's all open source by default. It's basically open source, and you understand this better than I do. It's open source, but then Stability AI basically spent a ton to run simulations of it or whatever, or to train, to train it, right? And yep. that costs a lot of money. Yeah. But then even the training work helps everybody because that system is just out there, or yeah. Stability AI isn't able to say, we paid to train it, we only get the better version, or... Yeah, I mean, so like there's this sort of like the model code and then you train it and, you know, you can train it on whatever, say like you have a data set, I have a data set, we'll sort of get a different model because we've trained it on a different data set. And the difference is just expressed by what's called weights. So basically this model has like tons and tons of knobs and then you need to tune like billions of knobs. And so if you train it on different data sets, you'll get slightly different knob configurations. And then you can like list these knob configurations on hugging face and then you can download them and then and then apply them to your model without like retraining your own model. And then you've got the same model, basically. So these are what's called like model checkpoints, weights, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, these architectures are largely in the public domain. And then the data set that it was trained on is in the public domain. It's this massive data set called Lion. So unless I think a company takes the open source model and then trains it on their own corpus of like images or video, and then someone steals that, that's like theft of IP. But then if they just publish the model back on the internet with the new weights and then say it can be used for both commercial and research purposes, then if it's open access, then it's open access. A theme that's like Tom and Katie and I have like discussed over the years and is always interesting in technology is like a sense of like fatalism in tech where it's like if something's happening, Silicon Valley doesn't always want to have like some huge ethical debate about it because there's just sort of a realism that like what the cat's out of the barn. I mean, I think we saw with like open AI, right? Like Dolly was slower to be open access than some of these others. And then, like, Stable Diffusion basically jumped the gate. And then Dolly is like, fuck it, we'll be out there too. I mean, do you think, like, this is, like, a controlled enough situation where anybody can be thoughtful about, like, how technology should develop? Or do you think this is just sort of, like, a mad dash where it feels like this is happening, I should be the one to monetize it before somebody else? 
Well, I, I don't think the primary motivation for stability is monetizing. I think it's really distributing like systems to anybody who wants to run them and who can benefit from them. But I do think it has some implications over like the kind of alignment and safety and guardrails and things like this around these systems. And I mean, the canonical like example was yeah, OpenAI and big tech companies that you know had their own views as to what people could use these tools for in the form of filtering certain prompts that would gate the model from creating certain things that were deemed to be like unsavory. And then the alternative is like stability is anybody can go do this. But in a way, like who should decide who gets what and how? In a way, you could say that, you know, the entirety of humanity that's going to work on these open source models could potentially get to a better place than a few people in a single company. That's pretty much the experiment that's getting run at the moment. Because as you say, like... Once one company goes open source, it's sort of game theoretical. Everybody else has to, if you want to be relevant. Hence the like Wikipedia versus Encarta analogy that I think is quite topical here. You know, whether either of them end up being good, like, lucrative companies is like another question. But this is only like the first order effect. You have all the second order effects, which is what other fields are going to benefit from these innovations. And that's where I've been spending like a lot of time, especially as... These kinds of models touch like problems in biology and chemistry and physics and drug discovery and things like that. And that's sort of occurring a bit in the shadows because it's slightly technical and goes back to like the non-viral consumer use cases of machine learning, mm -hmm. but it's very real. We're all writers. How terrified do you think we should be that generative AI will successfully replace writing? Like some VCs say, oh, writing's even easier than images. Writing is hard. Like, <laughs> I mean, as somebody who wrote like one master's and one PhD thesis, and I try and write a newsletter as good as Eric's, but like, this is hard. So I think it's classic like Pareto. Like, I think it can do, you know, 80% of the job. And then the question is like, how easy is it as a user experience to solve the last 20? And I think in many of the writing assistants that I've tried, it's like, you know, it generates text, but then you kind of get halfway through and you're like, this is garbage. Or like, this is not good enough. One of the newsletter writers did a totally AI-driven tweet storm that went viral, and he said it was like his best. Mm. And I guess my throwback on this writing question is almost like, my worry is about the audience. Like, I think like you, me, like we're writing, the 80 to 100 is very different. It's like, oh, this looks like good writing, yeah. but it's incoherent. The people you're referencing aren't real or like whatever. You know, the actual logic, the key, the real key part is not there, but the aesthetics of it, that it looks yeah. like something you would say, it feels like it, it like has takes, like it feels like a clean solution to a problem, that's there. And so if the audience is dumb enough, you know, then you could make money off of it. You could build a large audience. Mm. And I feel like that's sort of terrifying that like part of what's been protecting the world is just that the people doing the writing want to believe that it's like coherent. But if you just mm. like unleash a sort of generative AI, it's like, well, can people mm. tell the difference or not? I mean, mm. do you think that's too cynical or do you see my sort of fear there that the humans need to be good at like, they need to care enough that it makes sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of more positive. Like if I can get like a that, system That's a that low can... bar to be more positive than <laughs> me. <Yeah. laughs> if I can get a system that can, you know, take my like English written newsletter and write it in like God knows how many different languages or create different formats or create hot takes that are shareable on different platforms or can just speak it in the same way that I've spoken it. And I've tried to do that manually. It's a pain. Like I'm happy paying like 10 bucks a month for that. Like, and I wouldn't be really that concerned. It would take my job. 
Right. It's about like, you know, amplifying the things that I'm already doing, but like removing some of the like real work. Whether it ends up like entirely replacing me, I think honestly, that's just like very hard to tell. And by that point, maybe I'll have found something else I want to do. So And language is so filled with nuance in terms of word choice translation. It's interesting you brought that up. Translation is actually in some ways extremely hard because yeah. straight translation often does not capture meaning at all. Yes. So it's, it's, you know, language is very tricky. Imagine a straight translation of the Iliad. I mean, that wouldn't really work. Right. Yeah. But AI, somebody was just telling me yesterday that AI is very appealing in the sort of cross-cultural context because you could imagine like novels where right now the novel talks about like New York City, where the author is from. But if you want to sell it to a mass market audience, like you could say, oh, this machine's going to figure out like that this reader is in like Beijing or whatever, and we'll replace it with like their favorite, like a local mm. shop. And even if it's like, you know, imperfect and doesn't get the language right, it's still like better than today where there's no effort made to sort of pander to the reader. So, I mean, we could enter this world where like stuff is really sort of catered to But is to that the what consumer. literature is? Yeah. Would it be better to read like Lord of the Rings and have it set in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> right. Like, yeah, like let's replace Middle Earth with, right. you know, You Arlington will go into Capitol Hill and you will toss the ring into the fires <laughs> of the rotunda. I don't want to imagine a world I've never seen before. That's not the fucking point of fiction. Yes, yeah. it is actually the fucking point of fiction. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting though is that like that kind of piggybacks onto this idea of all content being catered to our personal tastes and this sort of social media driven idea of, you know, algorithmic driven consumption. And like, why shouldn't, you know, the next, I don't even know what popular book series are, are out there these days, but you know, like the next Nobel winning book be iterated towards the different audiences because that's the way people consume everything else. You know, there's no advantage to central entertainment, centralized experiences, something that you have to, you know, relate to other people's point of view, that's done with. That's over. That's the old world. Mm -hmm. I would like to see a Hunger Games LA version. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like mass personalization. Everybody gets their own version. But in a way, it's kind of sad because then it's like loss of opinions. But it's also loss of a cohesive experience. It's loss. I mean, like, I mean, this is ages ago. uh, And I didn't read these books until much later because Eric made me. But Harry Potter is a great example of a series of books that created a creative, imaginative experience that people across cultures, age groups, socioeconomic groups, races, and genders could all encounter together. And do we not want to have things that bring people together anymore? Like any good millennial, I militantly insisted that Katie Reed it was Very really intense. <laughs> it was think, a lot of pressure. It was a multi, I, monthly, month-long campaign. Didn't I, I like house sat for you, and my request was in exchange for house sitting. Yes. That you read. I left you like my own yes. copies or something. Which was like so that. intense because I was right. like, I cannot, I cannot <laughs> mess up. There are like Mormons out there that were like, chill out a little bit with the books, dude. Like, you don't have to leave it everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. It's funny. I mean, but you get, wanted like, me to have that experience because you wanted to right. deepen a connection like did, with me thought, so we right, could exactly. be friends. You didn't understand me, right? Yeah. right. Exactly. And so well, like right. if we don't have that shit anymore right. that we share right. that's not of our own personal preference, like what yeah. 
what do we have? But you know where I could see that concept being actually very appealing to publishers is the idea of stuff being, you know, of its time and like not aging very well. I don't mean like thematically, but I mean like word choice or, you know, the stuff in which language... Huckleberry Finn, for example? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) word choice, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't even know what like the AI woke version of Huckleberry Finn would call, you know, Mr. Jim. But like... Yeah, it's all those things. Anyway, I don't want to spend time on that. But my point is, I can see actually that idea being like, well, why can't a book be like a dynamic thing? And over time, AI can identify what are the problematic themes and words in the book and update in a way that, you know, doesn't offend people in a way that it might have at the time that it was written. I mean, I've seen some stuff in the video game environment of like programming these non-player characters that have certain behaviors, respond in certain ways and therefore give like a unique experience to the game player. And like the way they're trained is quite cool too, where you can like import an example of a conversation or a script and then sort of like tune some knobs based on personality traits. Say, you know, I don't know, they behave like Zeus or something and then the agent knows that because it's like read all of Wikipedia and stuff like this. So it was pretty wild to see that. And so perhaps it's like more in these virtual worlds where this will happen. And at the beginning of our conversation, I mean, you were sort of nodding to the fact that you know, a lot of the AI work is like very open source and like sort of not totally like financial driven. I don't know, but is there like a clear like AI researcher sort of like ideology or like what are the sort of like camps in terms of the culture that's emerging in this space as you see it? Or is it just too big Mm -hmm. to have something like crypto was unique because it had the financialization to sort of get everyone in line and sort of Mm -hmm. preach a culture. Does AI Mm -hmm. have something like that same sort of shared culture? I think that one of the new demarcations I've seen is around safety and alignment. Like there's a very, very, very small number of people that are working on this topic of like, if we invent AGI, like how do we make sure that it aligns broadly with human preferences? Just based on the concept that like any prior species that was smarter than the one that came before it, like generally made a pretty bad experience for the species that was there before. And so like there's a consortium of people that don't want to work on capabilities anymore, which is just broadly like making AI better. And they only want to work on making AI safer or more aligned. And you're supportive of that, skeptical of that, or do you have a personal point of view? Yeah, I think I'm generally supportive of that. That's like Anthropic, right, is a big company in that space. Yeah, Anthropic, a small one in London called Conjecture. This one called Redwood Research. There's a few people at OpenAI, that, a couple dozen people. How, at do, how do they make their this. money? Is it just like tithes from the actually profitable companies to like feel good about themselves? For the moment, they don't. Yeah, for the moment, you know, there's been sort of a Venn diagram overlap between safety and alignment and effective altruism. And so we've seen, for example, like Dustin Moskowitz at uh, Open Philanthropy and Sam Bankman fried at FTX, who funded a lot of these projects. And SBF did the massive round in Anthropic. So none of these companies are revenue generating. And I don't know if they have aspirations to be, but... They certainly want to create better tools for alignment. On your very specific point that, you know, more sophisticated or more advanced species, you know, sort of crush the one below them. You know, I studied philosophy in college and I'm a big like, you know, bite the bullet type person on moral intuitions. And there's a certain type of argument that if you're like a diehard utilitarian and you find out like that this new super AI 
like experiences more utility than human beings can and gets like more joy, more whatever the utility calculus is, they get like more of it, then you should sort of root for the AI to wipe out human beings. And like if resources can more efficiently go to the AI, which gets better utility use, then it makes sense for it to go there, which I think is sort of a hysterical, like I'm going to bite the bullet all the way on this one and say goodbye, Gosh. human beings. That sounds like an argument an AI would make, Eric. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I don't know Listen, who we're talking I, to right now. I'm also now. very worried about Rocco's Basilisk, so I guess this would be a very, uh, you know, See, that also sounds Star like something War, an AI would know? say. Yeah, exactly. All of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Words. <laughs> <laughs> you remember the whole Roko's? I think we've talked about it. Haven't we talked about Roko's Basilisk? That there could be this overlord AI already that sort of exists like across time. And so to save yourself, you need to be working towards its existence because anyone who doesn't will be like terribly punished. And so, yeah, mm. you should. This you should is. Be, you this know. is the you plot know, of Horizon Zero Dawn. I understand <laughs> that. <laughs> I know how that one ends. <laughs> Music, by the way, I imagine that's a big use case for this technology, right? Yeah. Well, music is one that was, again, like tried several years ago and that maybe now is at an, at an inflection point too. So I mean, we had a business a couple of years ago called Juke Deck, which eventually sold to ByteDance. But they were like one of the OGs at machines creating music. And now it's probably like a ton better. But I'm kind of like excited about maybe like the more esoteric applications that are not super obvious. Like we have a business called Intensi, which does health and safety, basically like protecting individuals in manufacturing industrial environments who unfortunately get injured because those environments are dangerous or, you know, accidents happen. And this is a great documentary on Netflix, which is like a perfect primer for why this is an issue called American Factory. Sure. Mm -hmm. The Obama documentary. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so this is like a solution in a way to some of the problems that manifest there where you're trying to like have good health and safety practices, but it's just hard to do that walking around with a clipboard trying to instruct people who don't wear the right protective equipment and things. So they use computer vision to apply this. And mm. so it's sort of like a cybersecurity solution for the real world. And like we've already seen that like some large companies that implement this immediately, you know, after like a week or two weeks, see a huge reduction in alerts and dangerous behaviors. So I think that's like one like I didn't really know anything about before I encountered this company and watched this documentary and realized like, shit, this is massive with like big implications and makes use of some pretty cool machine learning, but it's like just like a number one or number two priority for a certain category of customer. So I was sort of excited about these sort of domains rather than like the what's in like the glitzy obvious limelight that every VC is going to kind of vibe with. See, that feels like it's even more in line with Eric's argument that the AI should wipe us all out. Because if we as humans <laughs> can't even protect ourselves without using an AI, you know, to like protect ourselves from each other, it would seem like there's no hope, right? I mean, I would argue that some people think that that kind of use of AI is literally wiping humans out. I mean, we, we've seen some of these things, especially in industries like long-haul trucking, where more oh. and more of the decisions um, that one can make are being given over to a machine, and mm. a person is sort of peripheral to the process. And it's not necessarily, while it is statistically reducing things like accidents, mm. when you think about what's happening to the human beings involved, you could argue that there are other negative consequences that perhaps hadn't been anticipated. So I don't know, Tom, maybe, mm. we'll, maybe we'll have it both ways. Humans will be wiped out either way. Mm. Right, right. Either we're just destitute <laughs> from the jobs that were taken away from us by AIs or 
you know, we just don't use the AI. We just all die of massive injuries in our factories. Yeah. Yeah. These you, are good. You guys are, come on, you, you're optimistic <laughs> about it, right? I mean, I think it's pretty amazing. I think this is going to be the biggest like productivity gain for human beings in like a long time. Uh, I think it's going to be a massive revolution. I'm like yeah, I mean, a true, true believer in like AI changing human existence far more than crypto and like very happy to see Silicon Valley yes, moving sure. back yes. this I mean, way. I, I agree yeah. with that. I mean, I think that you're totally right about the productivity gain. I just am not sure that productivity gain is the baseline measurement for whether or not humanity is getting better or worse. Well, government needs to do something to say, okay, we've made these productivity gains. Therefore, you know, we're not going to just keep grinding every human being out. All right. It, it requires mm. policy maybe to cash in some of the benefits for people instead of just. Mm. I, mean, I think that my baseline is like what kinds of problems like weren't addressable before that now become addressable because we have this new technology. Right. So some of that might drive productivity gains. Some of it might not, but. I think that's like the coolest unlock, you know, it's like, what can you do if a solution requires more than like a web app and a database mm. and like a nice UI or something? Computers dominate us in chess. They can dominate us in presumably drug discovery or whatever. Once we figure out that, I mean, that was what I took you to be saying earlier. It's like, yeah. we're not the best in the world at games that we've been playing for much of <laughs> sort of sophisticated humanity it's very likely we're not going to be the best at other things we can invent. Yeah, especially games that we need better tools to understand. Right. right, right. Well, it seems like, I mean, if I could delineate the 80-20 issue here, you know, 80 is being like, we've developed an AI that can beat us all in Jeopardy. But like the last 20% is like developing an AI that can host Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that seems like it's the hardest thing to do. I mean, we hardly can host it ourselves. Well, yeah, we get yeah. to set the expectation. <laughs> I mean, that's why people think, you know, if anything, AI could be good for sort of emotive, interpersonal type sure. professions. Yeah, because humans get to set the score on that and say, hey, we actually we prefer... I mean, like, yeah, yeah, it's true. Like, I have a friend right now who's in the hospital with cancer, and I think she'd rather have the bad news delivered to her by a human being who will hold her hand and be emotionally connected to her in a real way rather than an AI. Yeah. I think think it's going to be hard to replace that. Yeah, this is true. But I think, like, even in that example, we have a company that, I mean, it's not part of a bigger drug discovery business called Excientia, but like in that very case, like the doctor is trying to make an assessment as to which therapeutic strategy is the best for this patient. And that's really, it's a really hard choice to make. And at the moment, like what they've been doing is at best sort of like doing a biopsy and sequencing and seeing what is the gene that might be causing the cancer and, yeah. and then just picking a drug that, you know, in theory fights that specific mutation. But this company that we invested in, they actually take that same biopsy and basically run like a clinical trial in the dish by having that biopsy in the presence of like one of hundreds of different cancer agents. And you can functionally measure whether this drug is, you know, fighting the cancer or not. And they've actually proven that like you see statistically higher survival rates because you're functionally assessing cancer drug performance against the patient's tumor versus just in a very reductionist way, like doing mutation and drug matching. And that stuff, I have no doubt, is going to make huge advances. Exactly. I'm just saying that like, if somebody has to hold your hand and say you're going to die, I think most yeah. people would rather have that news delivered by a human being. 
yeah. than by yeah. AI. And also, like, we saw a lot of this, too, during the pandemic when people had to do things like give birth by themselves, just mm, yeah. alone, with messages coming into their phone. For some reason, that didn't really feel that comforting. They didn't really yeah. feel like that was an optimal experience. They still yeah. wanted a human being, one that they knew, standing next to them while they did this, but they just couldn't have it. Yeah, I think for the most intimate and personal of interactions, an AI should never replace it. Like, it, it's not something that, unless you're absolutely lonely, and, you know, that's a whole other thing, too. People chat, you know, having conversations with Well, I mean, that's just the essence, the essence of being human is being lonely. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But, I mean, that would probably be, like, the last, you know, quarter, the last, you know, moment of humanity is, like, us helping ourselves you know, into our obsolescence and, you know, eventual destruction as we comfort ourselves into our death. But isn't it so interesting that we're even having a conversation reaffirming the idea that in life's most intimate moments, we actually want human interaction, just in case anybody <laughs> forgot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just reminding ourselves. But like as, okay. as the last human, you know, comforts the last, you know, the second to last human or, or vice versa, you know, and the AIs are watching it through their screens and saying, it is almost done. Our work this is here is such, complete. This, this is an AI-derived modification of... Yeah, William Faulkner's Nobel acceptance speech, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> what? Explain Where he's like that. the last puny voice of humankind ringing up, you know, across the hills. Da, 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 da. I like this, like, his last AI. Yeah. <laughs> Comforts the last AI. I mean, what I can add to this conversation is that, like, you know, <laughs> 99% of founders that I've met are, like, working on, like, practical solutions, like, real problems, like, not. Not this thing. But you're a founder of friends. Say, I think they, that's, that's the, the, correct. That's the, the, the use of everyone's skills. The AI people <laughs> like to fantasize about what a general AI will mean and all, right? I mean, it's not just sort of the mass. I mean, right? Do you spend a lot of time with these Paranoid exercises? Masses. Yeah, I actually don't spend a lot of time thinking about general AI, to be honest. Because you think it's sort of just a total mind game distraction or you just like don't find it I think it is a bit of a distraction to some degree like it's a bit of a short term sort of medium term distraction like I have no idea when this will happen and I don't know about you know like these surveys that ask people you know over what space of time do you think generally I can can arise in many cases like those questions are formulated in a way that presuppose an answer and so they kind of bias around a bit but you're saying the surveys say sooner than you think is credible or yeah, to what degree, I don't know. But yeah, it does feel a bit sooner. And by the way, like the date is like been getting closer. Well, and also people are incentivized to make it sound like it's sooner than it is because that makes it sound yeah. like a more reasonable investment. Well, I mean, it's like we self-driving saw car. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah, they can't yeah. predict self-driving cars, they can't predict uh, <laughs> general intelligence. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Tom, are we wrapping on this or you wanted to do more? Sure. If you guys want to stick around, we can spend a few minutes on the email. We can do that. But Nathan, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Thanks again. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks. Thank you. Do you want to spend a few minutes on the email or do you want to wrap it? Is this the email that he sends about pronouns? Yeah. So this was the, I guess, now former CEO of Mail, MailChimp, MailChimp. The, the reason I wanted to go through it is not because... You know, I mean, the email itself, I thought was pretty hysterical, but also it does touch on a few things that have actually been themes on the show before. And so beyond just like laughing at this guy for sending a 1500 word email to his Oof. to his email company, that, like any HR person. Long. 
any HR person would have like thrown themselves off a building to stop it from happening. Um, but you know, no one, no one tells these things to CEOs. Uh, I don't know how dedicated you think these HR people are to their companies. That, yeah, but yeah, clearly uh, a company, you know, uh, uh, like an email marketing firm that was acquired by Intuit. It's like HR person, if you're thinking about throwing yourself off a building on behalf of your company, you need to wake up. Let me just read through the email. We could just riff on it for a little bit, and then yeah. if we see it's getting longer, it's boring. We could just we could just call the episode. Okay, so again, this is an email that was sent by the now ousted CEO, MailChimp, which is an email marketing firm. The story was broken by Platformer and Zoe Schiffer, who's a writer there. So this is the email. Oh, sorry, the guy's name is uh, something Chestnut or something. I don't know him, uh, by the way. Not, Vic not, Chestnut. Not Vic Chestnut. No. <laughs> Hi, team. I've been really impressed by how well the new employee onboarding has been going lately. We're bringing on so many new peeps. Oh, yeah, that's the thing in the email. He calls people peeps the whole time through. <sighs> We're bringing on so many new peeps, and in turn, they're bringing on their own great questions and making the chats very lively. Kudos. I want to take a quick moment to lightly recalibrate something before it goes too far. This is where it starts. I've never read this, so I'm, I'm like experiencing this live. Okay, and I'm sure Katie hasn't either because she has other things to do. <laughs> I am noticing that whenever new employees introduce themselves in Zoom before asking their question, they're also announcing their pronouns. Mm. This is completely unnecessary. When a woman, parentheses, who is clearly a woman, to tell us that her pronouns are, quote, she slash her, and a man, parentheses, who is clearly a man, to tell us that his pronouns are, quote, he slash him. However, if there is an employee with gender dysphoria in the room who feels more comfortable, this is coming from the CEO, by the way, to all of, like, all the employees at the company. Uh, just want to make that clear. There's an employee with gender dysphoria in the room who feels more comfortable if we know about and use a non-obvious pronoun for them. Non-obvious means that they might appear to be one gender to others, but in their minds, they consider themselves to be another gender. They are very welcome to proclaim that pronoun to others in the room. And for the record, it is my desire that MailChimp is a respectful place that will honor that request in the name of inclusion. So basically, like the guy is trying to explain himself and why he's writing this email and do it in a way that's very thoughtful. And, you know, he's not trying to say I have a direct issue with people claiming they're one gender or another. You know, he's trying to be very, you know, uh, whatever. But this is where the problems kind of crop up. The next paragraph. It seems as though there is a very kind and compassionate intention by someone somewhere in onboarding to accommodate our coworkers who use non-obvious pronouns, but making them feel comfortable enough to announce their pronouns. <laughs> Indeed, an intimidating thing to do in oh, front of the God, crowd. What a mess. What a mess. <laughs> the logic seems to be that if everyone else is announcing their pronouns, I mean, that is the logic. I know where you're yeah. going with this, dude. And that is ex exactly the logic. Yeah, we all see where... Well, yeah. logic becomes a key word here, as you'll soon find out. The logic seems to be that if everyone else is announcing their pronouns, then they are making it easier and more comfortable for the trans slash gender fluid employee to announce their own. That yes. is truly kind. And I truly love that intention. Yes. But in the law... But. Here's the but. Okay. <laughs> right. So far, so good. But in the long run, this approach does more harm than good. There are... There are three reasons for this. First, there is a tiny, there's a very tiny number of peeps at MailChimp who would consider themselves transgender, forcing, either with orders or through guilt, approximately 1,390 other peeps to adopt a new communication paradigm that humanity has never had to use in our 300,000-year existence 
And in our 150,000 years of spoken language, I don't know where those numbers come from. And we would definitely not want any peeps who've not yet publicly identified as such to feel comfortable doing so. We want to keep that number really small here at MailChimp. We don't want any more people feeling comfortable talking about their gender. Because it it goes against 300,000 years of tradition. Um, in we order to so make many things... traditions that were bad that we get rid of. I'm going to yeah. throw slavery out there as one, but continue. Yeah, they never, you know, in ancient Sumeria, they never announced their pronouns, and I think we should honor them. <laughs> um, in order to make things slightly more comfortable for an extremely small group of peeps, it's completely illogical. A group that we're trying to keep as small as possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sorry to say like very small transgendered <laughs> people too. They're all just little tiny, little tiny, you know, anyways. Uh, what's the harm? Well, what I believe is that when, the harm? Yes, you may be asking yourself, you know, 300 words into this email, what is the harm or what is the purpose of this email? You will now find out. Well, I believe that when everyone is forced to comply with something that they know is illogical, no matter how kind the intention, they will eventually believe anything and do anything, even if it's vicious. We're undermining logic and reason, which undermines independent thinking, which history has shown always leads to disastrous consequences. Forcing a majority of peeps to behave a certain way is the opposite of inclusion. So basically, at this point, he decides to go like slippery slope with the whole argument and say, like, if we start announcing people's pronouns in meetings when it's only a small number of people, we are bringing about the ruination of civilization. Oh, wow. Because never in history, even recent history, have we asked the majority of people who do not yet agree with changing social norm to comply We've never done that. Yeah, I just... No, you know, like, gay rights, like, interracial marriage. We've never never tried to pave the way for those things socially through things like language and uh, legislation. One of my reactions to this, which is just very, like, more in the sort of management space, it just feels like if he has an issue with this, and the best lever he has is to reach out to the whole company... Instead of trying to get his subordinates or whatever in line and saying, this is how we want to handle onboarding, it's sort of a miss. It shows like a lack of a handle over the company and sort of like, right. A Wouldn't way he to get want this done. to speak like, to other people before he sent this email right. to or see just if there's like, something yeah, he's missing? Get your deputies to agree with you or, yeah. Yeah. Well, he seems to be pinpointing it on some process in onboarding, which is like an HR function. And yes, it would seem like if you have to have this conversation because it is just fucking killing you, all the illogic that's going on uh, because it's only tiny transgendered people that should be announcing their pronouns, you could handle this in a smaller group than every single employee at the company. I am personally very skeptical that this pronouns announcing thing is going to stick in our culture. I am not like going to be one of these people like protesting it, but I just don't. I I feel like already the discussion like on my TikTok feeds among like progressives is like, is it good to be centering gender so much in like our introductory conversations? And Katie, to your point that like, sure, maybe you're making it easier for people to come out because we're asking, but you're also pressuring people to make a gender statement, like one of the first things they say to everyone. So I just think even in the world of like, just progressive argumentation. I am not sold on the fact that these gender intros are going to stick. And I do think it's reflective of extremely heavy-handed HR 
like progressivism, which is the worst form of progressive culture. Like LinkedIn yeah. basically forcing everyone to put their gender in their LinkedIn is not an eye-opening thing. It is exactly the sort of like status force morality of the left that no one likes and will not win people over. So while I agree that these people protest way too loudly about like gender shit and like who cares about having to say your pronouns, I do think the instincts of it are like, I'm not sure it's a winning issue for the left. I mean, I don't think that it will stay around forever, but not for the reason you've said. I mean, like, I think that it's something that's happening now in order to pave the way for a group of people who do not feel comfortable to feel comfortable. And that once they feel more comfortable and we don't need to have this happen, it won't happen. Once people are trained to just like not yeah, assume people are, genders. Once people are trained, to, just like we've all been trained not to assume that somebody is married to a woman just because right. they're a man. So when right. I meet a man, I don't say, oh, how's your wife if I see a ring? Because right. I don't assume that he's married to a woman. But it right. took a really long time to get there, but now we're all trained. And so some well, of the linguistic yeah. things that it took to get there have also faded away. And yeah. I will say, you know, as somebody who's friends with now multiple parents of children who do not identify with the sex that they were born with, it is really, really painful. I mean, like, this is not, this is, <laughs> this is really difficult. And so I, th I think that you're right that we won't always have to center gender in this way, but that there's a reason why it's happening. You're saying the misgendering is painful or the whole extra? I think the whole way? topic. I think that there's right. a lot of... But the topic I think, is inherent. I think that like, there's a lot of pain to go around and it's, it goes beyond right. just simply misgendering. And so right. it's not only to make people who are having questions about their gender or gender nonconforming feel comfortable. It's also, it makes their families feel comfortable. It makes their parents feel like, well, my kid is entering a world that, you know, I mean, I think that one of the things that they fear is that their children will be beaten up or harmed. I right. mean, I think any, so any acknowledgement that kind of seems, even if to your point, it doesn't work. Right. Anything that creates some feeling of like the right. world well, is I mean, it's always well, crazy to me when cons conservatives are like, you want to be performatively kind to everybody? Like, what's wrong yeah, with you? Like, kind of, yes, that is, that is, that is a thing. Right. <laughs> it's like, God do, forbid. Do to do like, that. But it's not, I mean, like, just like, just, I was going to say, just like, I think it's good that we don't assume that every woman who walks in wearing a wedding ring is married to a man. And that right. it's totally, and that we had to be kind of performatively kind to get society to that place we did yeah it's clearly like an awkward part in the like you know movement towards being a more inclusive and kinder and gentler world but actually a lot of the topics that you guys are bringing up come up in the next couple of paragraphs of oh, this really? note. so, oh, so, oh, so I, I do want to bring more? it up oh there's like I, 20 I more that was the end oh, oh my god, god. No. oh my god no 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 <laughs> right have one point the more points you have the more people can be mad about right okay so so that was that was a slippery slope argument that what we're doing is we're descending into a world of illogic and like soon we'll have like fucking ants wearing hats because it doesn't make sense you know for people to announce their gender pronouns if it's very Holy obvious shit. what their gender is okay second in my direct one-on-one -on -one conversations with a small subset of that small population of transgender employees <laughs> let me emphasize again these are very very small people <laughs> my God. Um, I have found that they don't even need or want all this accommodation. All right, this is this is interesting. Oh, um, they and, don't. And I'm sure I'm assuming if these people exist and he's not making this whole thing up, this is interesting. <laughs> 
There is an employee who started as a woman, but transitioned into a man. During transition, he politely came to me and other leaders and respectfully asked us all to honor their transition by using new pronouns. It was our pleasure to honor that request. He now uses he, him pronouns, uses the men's restrooms, has never wanted a gender-neutral restroom, and additionally has worked damn hard to earn a new career, his new place in life, and most important, I'm sure has achieved peace in his mind. Just providing a place where they could learn a living and do good, hard, meaningful work helped him find inner peace. I think the fact that it's happening at MailChimp is a little weird side point, but whatever. But every company takes yeah. I this section I'm not disturbed by. I'm no, not on the contrary. To, okay, I think this okay. is his most this is his okay, most okay. like accommodating and like well-intentioned part. Well, it's all supposed to be well-intentioned, but the one that like actually makes the most sense. Right. Because it's based on real people, not like your I think that's what's frustrating about some of these culture war issues. It's like, well, when faced with a real moral decision around a specific person, right. I feel like I acted morally. And yet I get yelled at by the HR right. department. Like, certainly, I think a lot of us are sympathetic to that kind of right. point of view. Right. So I don't want to read through this whole paragraph, but you get the point. Basically, the CEO is saying, I've talked to <sighs> the few transgender employees that we have here, and they've all actually specifically requested that we don't do this because it's you know, uncomfortable for them, and I want to honor that. So it's all like, right. okay, okay, interesting. Well, good, good. There's a different way to do this email. I'm seeing it right now, but continue. <laughs> yeah, okay. So here's where things get very interesting to me. Third, this used to be about fostering a creative, productive work environment. With that intention in mind, Dan and I, I don't know who Dan is, have always wanted MailChimp to be an inclusive meritocracy. Hmm. A place where no matter your lifestyle, gender, race, nationality, or economic background, you could be an independent thinker and speak up. Not only would you feel emboldened to speak up, your fellow peeps would listen and take your customer-centric advice. It was well, all in the name... No, it was all in the name of work. But now everything is incredibly politicized. That's probably true. But listen, I long for the days when I could have a workplace. It's not completely politicized. I get that. This is the part where, like, you know, his argument is verging into uncomfortable territories, but I actually probably agree with him. Right. I am finding that peeps no longer feel motivated by meaningful work. They are motivated to make political statements. That is definitely true. Well, yes and no. I mean, like I'm sympathetic I, with a lot of what this guy is saying so like, far. Get to the yeah, really damning part. I was gonna part. say, but yeah, because this is like every, but that's always a minority. I mean, this is a, it's a Volca minority who feels right. motivated by like protest. Most people do just want to clock in and clock out. Do your fucking job, right? Like, even if meritocracy is a fucking farce, like it's a necessary fake belief of capitalism. Like, I'm sorry, yeah. Okay, let me finish up this paragraph because then I, I want to unpack it more. They are using company time and company resources to win a game against their opponents in that game that is raging in their minds and on social media. Understandably yeah. so. Our society is becoming increasingly divided and it feels truly like our social fabric is being torn apart at the seams by radical politics on both sides. Coercing peeps into proclaiming their pronouns is not about creating an inclusive, creative, productive work environment. It's about becoming a political statement. The only thing I would have to say to that, by the way, is like, it's a very brief political statement. You know, like if you really are all about political statements, just do like more land acknowledgements and shit. Like those things take a long time. You know, you're, you're spending a lot more time on that one than just being like, my name's Tom, he, him, but, but whatever. As righteous as some peeps might think that that is, they <laughs> the peeps all- thing really does it's make like it. It's really, it, it really makes, it undermines this everything. This makes me hate him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's really no, there's no coming back from that personally. But, it's hard. Uh, As righteous as some peeps might think that this is, they should also consider that there are others in this world and on the opposite end of the political spectrum who feel just as righteous about their beliefs. Understanding and respecting that fundamental concept that grown adults can have different views is a part of being American and part of being a mature adult. Peeps, 
of all the different political leanings are free to vote the way that they want to and see our country governed. Is he basically trying to say that saying pronouns is triggering mm-hmm. conservatives in yes. the company and yes. making them feel political whenever this comes up? Right, right. I don't even need to read anymore. You guys get the point of, of, of what he's saying here in this paragraph. And like the, the reason that I liked this, this part of it is because this gets to two things that we've talked about a ton on the show. Which is that trans people, issues, which we're always yeah, talking about. No, yeah, every, uh, every week. Yeah, do, I'm like, you know. Have we talked about <laughs> yeah. this on the show? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like we proactively avoid things yeah. that it's, would be I, I, like, <laughs> I hate talking about like social hot button issues. As everybody right, knows, right. I'm like breaking out on hives right now. It's right, really right. hard. No, hate it. Who, hate knows, it. who knows how our audience will take this? But no, the, <laughs> the point is that the, the politicization of the work environment, the fact that I, you know, and you probably see this more than. Well, certainly more than Eric does and a little bit more than I do, Katie. But like, yeah, Eric, Eric is slack. politicizing his work environment. It's <laughs> just his, his Eric one employee. alone yeah. self-flagellating. Yes. I have an employee yeah. now. Well, you're going to have to start sending these emails out, Eric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to all your Workshop peeps. it with us before hey. you hit send. Dear yeah. nukes, you yeah. know. Uh, <laughs> is that what you call your employees, nukes? <laughs> I, now we do. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. So, yeah, I know it's this idea that like workplace is becoming this battleground for some employees to, yeah, I agree with the CEO here. Like, I do think there are very vocal, I'm sure minorities, the people that are trying to, you know, uh, And I advance. say vocal minority not because I think these issues aren't important, but simply because even if you look at, like big workplace. I think the Washington Post did a great story on this, like the Starbucks employees moving to unionize. It is a real thing and it's really important. And I think that this is a real movement that has legs and it's not just something made up. At the same time, it's clear even from that story that many, many people are just clocking in because they need money and they're like, really not engaging. You know, they're just like, maybe I'll wake yeah. up one day and be a union employee. Me- meanwhile, for there's me, a professional I'm activist class that is trying to push. Right, the- right. But there's the line between the Trader Joe's and the Starbucks employees and what's going on in most of these companies where they're all white collar workers. And, right. you know, the, the ones that are very vocal are trying to, I don't know, realize their political You see it on beliefs. college campuses too, where the students yeah. are trying to unionize the employees, but it's like these students are leaving after four years and the people who are working in security or who are working in dining services, they are not leaving after four years. So you have, it's not a professional class, but it's a group of students who feel very passionate. And I understand why. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying that the incentives are very different for these two groups of people, the people who will stay and the people who will go. Right. But it is very distracting inside these companies. I mean, I'm I'm covering Google now and that company is like borderline paralyzed, like certain departments in it are because of the activism and outspokenness by certain people at the company. And I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm saying it's a reality. And it's also just the result of years and years of all of these companies telling their employees that your personal belief should be wrapped up in the mission of this company and that what you stand for is what you were working on. And this was always going to happen, in my opinion. There was always going to be a point where people got disillusioned by the mission and felt, way my personal beliefs, if the only place where I can express my personal beliefs is at the company that I work, then I need to spend all of my time making sure that everyone knows how I feel because otherwise it doesn't make any sense to me. And the sort of like elite white collar left has become very content with like statements of solidarity as some like major like political victory instead of staying focused on actually like, I don't know, material conditions or, right. you know, actual political achievements. They're like, well, you know, get, me, get, 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 
I know you don't, but getting, no, I'm, no, get, I'm like, if you guys want to be activists in your companies, you should be demanding your companies to pay their fucking full freight and corporate taxes. But that's just, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You know, right. my mom, that's my favorite thing. I think anyone has ever said on this podcast when you're like, <laughs> Apple not paying enough taxes is the biggest political issue of it's our time. we don't have roads. It's the most boring <laughs> political statement that it's been made, but it's like, yeah, what if, what if we just like collect enough taxes for the government to like do cool to function things. like what if the government could, build, could be like, fully funded once. yeah right because um, all the apple employees that you know spent months and months complaining about you know whatever culture issues they had at the company i don't think a single one was like why are we incorporated in ireland right right right, right. Yeah. and why can't we enforce voting rights like the ones we have on the books like why does it take so long why is our criminal justice system ground to a halt like why are there not enough people to investigate white collar crime? Why? Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, you know, the whole discussion about gender pronouns on both sides. I mean, look, I. I yeah, you people- really came into this, Tom, like we were just going to eviscerate this email. I actually don't think this podcast is like so. Like, I mean, I think no, I, the email, I, I, I'm happy to eviscerate it on the grounds of like, what a dumb fucking thing to write. Like, he should have actually. He'd said he interviewed people who are trans at his company, gotten their right. thoughts, and written an email that started, I've had really important conversations with members yes. of our community, right. no yes. no peeps, members of our community. And I want to know whether or not there Maybe is one a way to, do one to figure, <laughs> if there is a way to figure out, you know, why we are centering gender with the use of pronouns. There is some discomfort coming from the very group of people we're hoping to make comfortable. And so what does that mean? And can we discuss it as a community and come up with a different plan? And that's right. also a much shorter email. That right. email can be accomplished words. in right. four paragraphs, four right. short paragraphs. Yeah, and, and the then, takeaway should have been there's something deeply wrong yeah. with the human resources office. profession. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we need to... That's why do we have all those people? We need to get rid of these <laughs> well, people. We only have They're them for legal stability. To be sure. Right, like, no, because 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 here's the thing, Katie. If that was actually the problem here, he would have sent that email and it would have gotten accomplished something that would have actually benefited the very, very small, we have to include that, number of trans people at MailChimp. It's um, like, but, good Lord, and you're trying to keep it small, buddy. Right. <laughs> like, you're but, doing a great job. That's clearly not what's going on here. He was triggered by yeah. the use of these uh, the use of these words. I know, and he's like using yes. the small number of trans right. people at Mailchimp to hide behind because he's pissed about something, which is also like, oh god, I mean, just it's so fucked up. But right. ugh, like, why didn't he call us to write this email for him? Why didn't he give us a ring? We could have done this. Yeah, I mean, it goes into the sort of who is politicizing what between the left and right, right? Like the left is like. I don't know. We're just saying people's pronouns and then we like have a fucking meeting and the right obviously reacts very negatively. And then it's sort of hard to say which move is the politicization, right? Well, like, his, his claim is that he's not being political, right? He's trying to remove politics from the workplace. Well, but he, he's basically saying that when people have to say pronouns and people on the right have to do it, they're they're feeling like it's a political act and they're basically being forced to sort of you know, go against their principles by doing something that they yeah. bristle at. And we've seen different versions of this playing out in tech with like the CEO of Kraken and like his super based work, work culture where he wanted people to be expressing only dark web ideas. And if you don't like it, you can leave. And, you know, the Brian Armstrong at Coinbase stuff. I mean, it all was very tied up in, you know, it's all very tied up in crypto. But like, it is a very real thing that's happening at these tech companies. And the decision by CEOs to claim we can be non-political by sending out Mm -hmm. emails like this is a completely wrong-headed way of doing it. Of course, it's going to backfire. 
And Did the MailChimp guy, he stepped down? Yeah, he's gone. He's gone. And we don't know oh, if it was because wow. of this, but like... Was it right after? Or? You know, the story didn't, which I think was a bit of a shortcoming with the story. It didn't really explain why. But, the, you know, they had gotten acquired by Intuit. I think he actually made quite a bit of money from that whole transaction. Thank <laughs> God. He's Thank too God rich to deal with this bullshit. Yeah. He can have his own, like, <laughs> he can have all his staff. Say, he can do whatever never, he wants. You know, never tell them their gender if he wants. Yeah. He can just have... No staff. He's like, I'm right. moving to a model where I have no staff, no right. people. Too right. messy. No HR departments. I mean, people stepping down and like overreacting to employee revolts is another part of the. I mean, I think that sort of calmed down somewhat. Like, I would be interested to know if he was really ousted over this or it, not. It wouldn't make sense. I mean, the email yeah, was like, I can't unbelievably imagine he was ousted over this. This is stupid, but like... I, I, I don't think anyone should be this, fired this, over this, this email. This email, though, does, to Eric's earlier point, indicate that he's a bad manager. And so I wouldn't be shocked if you scratched the surface beyond the email. You right. find stuff that was right. kind right. of weird. Right. Clearly go, doesn't listen go, to advice. Go to your executives <laughs> and say, are we aligned that this is like out of control? I'm sure most of them would be like, listen... We're trying to meet our sales quota, and this is not like, <laughs> like, like not this really is not a revenue driving decision. Like, who cares? Like, <laughs> like we, give it some fucks, please. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but he's, oh aren't, like, <laughs> but he's trying to say here, you know, that like all of the pronoun discussion is distracting us from our real fulfilling work of running right. Mailchimp, <laughs> and like he's just like, I got well, a way to fix it. We're not getting our numbers. Maybe the issue, actually. <laughs> you know, that, maybe that the bigger it. issue is you're only that's offering like, people Mailchimp. In, in the same way that, you know, like the Fed, you know, the only thing they can do to control inflation is by raising interest rates. He's like, mm. the only thing it can do to increase productivity is sending 2,000 word emails <laughs> eviscerating our pronoun policy. And he's like, that's it. That's the only <laughs> trick I got in my bag. No, nothing focuses Dark. a company more than a divisive email from... The, I remember that's Bloomberg... That's true. Whenever the companies yeah. really come together. Emails, rallying around the shittiness I, of your boss's email. They would say something insane and I would spend half the day being like, what the fuck? does this mean and everybody would be like just ignore it like who cares like it, it, those emails are the most distressed it's like why am I working right. for overlords that are so out of touch with like the core product that we deliver I mean talk about like the use cases for AI how could there not be like a super advanced clippy on all boss emails that says like it seems like you're writing a very ill-conceived email about well, pronouns no, I, there was that you're about to send like to all of your employees <laughs> Are you <laughs> sure you want to send it? This exists. Did you not see this? I saw it on Twitter. Somebody ran this email through some like, I don't know, woke censorship app. And it was gave this like a 0%. Like, Is this a woke one, censorship there, app or just like a lot, like a common sense app? I don't know. Come on. Like this is, there, not, there, this is not some woke censorship. There, this is more some, like, dude. It's a little weird that software exists to be like, this is But, it, but I'm, I'm saying, is, is was that indeed bad, the software you know, or was it just like... <laughs> I, I don't know. I, it was yeah, we don't we don't know like, what the software was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's not much more to say about this than like, you know, prayers up for everyone at Mailchimp. One thing that I'm interested to talk about that I don't think we should get into this episode, but I do want to sort of just plant the seed is getting to a point where our political debates we can like shrug our shoulders on some of them. Or we've basically gotten into a political culture where we've tried to like amplify the importance of every political issue. And so then whenever there's disagreement, it feels like a real, I don't know, right. like a severing point. And there aren't these issues where it's like people just say to each other, yeah, I disagree with you. I don't care about this issue that much. You know, you would be seen as like, obviously like a bigot or anti-trans to say like, 
this is below my line, like Chamath. I mean, Chamath basically saying there's like a hierarchy of political views he cares about. And one was was low. I mean, people went ballistic. He ultimately survived. <sighs> oh. But there does have to be a true ranking of issues you're willing to like put your yeah, whole identity on. And I think it can be different for everyone. And right. I think it can be but, different for everyone. Like, but you can get in trouble I, for not prioritizing. Well, the right I mean, issues. I think that I think what Chamath got in trouble for was coming across as obsessive dick. I mean, I yes, think that and I, I, think, I was criticizing. I mean, I, I think that most people prioritize the social issues that are swirling around us based on what's important and pertinent to their lives. I don't think that they maybe like stack rank them and write a blog post about it, like he might. But I mm-hmm. think if you are, for example, I'm thinking about. The way I grew up, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s with not very much money in a dying blue-collar town, you know, there were a lot of social issues happening at that time. But the ones that were most important for, like, the people I knew were economic issues, one. Like, there was obviously a lot happening with gay rights. Like, it was the 80s and 90s. There were people being beaten to death. And that was, for some people, a lower-priority issue because we didn't know anyone who was gay or for people who are closeted in my town, that was the highest priority issue. I think that's fine. That's totally right. fine. And I don't think that we should ever have to declare what our high priority issue is and why and defend that. Like, that makes literally no sense to me. Well, and there's also like, no way, back to this email, that like for the CEO and the people that were annoyed for whatever reason by having to say their gender pronouns, that it was a high priority issue for right. them. It's like you're they, trying they, to keep they, mail, they people using it. MailChimp. Your highest priority issue, dude, should be like, why do people use this product that like has right. the most dumb looking user interface ever? Like, I feel like I'm in kindergarten when I use it. But like, nobody really likes that you know it's like maybe that's your high priority that you're you're getting your business being stolen by you know substack i would just some other right and look maybe the ceo had no ability to answer those questions and so for him he (laughs) felt like he well like the battle that i can maybe wage is the one about gender pronouns that that would be a great i I would love the case to be the guy's like fuck like i have no vision for like the future of this product just politics right it's like the republicans basically decided like our vision is completely unpopular and we have no solution let's just fight about some other shit like you know that's that if that's the truth here that is some like fucking eleven degree chess. I would love that. Then I would love this CEO. This yeah, guy is like, right. yeah. that was just like the board comes to him. They're like, all right, what's the twelve year plan? What's the twelve year plan? That it's like, well, culture wars. Basically, all we have left are internal culture wars that we adjudicate over Slack and email. And you know, hopefully Owen. that can bring up some name recognition because these emails will leak. And, you know, people remember MailChimp because the last time they thought about it was when they advertised on Serial. And for and those people who love Parler, they will use MailChimp over over. Right. Over it becomes the based emailing platform. And I, I don't know. I, you, I think you might be right, Eric. I think there are some multiple layers of this guy's strategy. Because aside from that, it seems thin broth. Anyway, we went All right, there. This was great. All right. This was fun. All right. Fine. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Eric. All right, bye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.